Welcome to Mission Critical, sale leaseback podcast by Ascension, the world's number one sale leaseback show. We share the latest in sale leaseback advice from the best in the game to keep you at the cutting edge of the hottest emerging practices in corporate real estate. I'm your host, Tom Johnson. We talk to sale leaseback. This is Mission Critical, a podcast by Ascension. I'm Tom Johnson, and thank you for uh, joining us today. I'm here with Tom Edson. Tom is a founding partner of Fawn Real Estate, a boutique real estate firm in London. Fawn Real Estate specializes in leasing development and capital market with 75 years of combined experience and a transaction volume of over four billion pounds in the last five years. Tom, welcome to the show. How's it going? Yeah, thank you, Tom. That's quite Quite a nice introduction. Good to join you. I'll uh, give you my uh, tuppence on the UK market. Hopefully some of your listeners find some of this interesting. Yeah, no, we do for sure. So, you know, I think first and foremost, similar to Ascension, launched our firm in April, May of this year, very close in time to when you and your partners yep. decided to launch your firm. And, and it's it's interesting times, you know, back at the beginning of the year when you guys were probably thinking of doing this or maybe a little earlier, it was very exciting times. Transaction volume was up. Interest rates were low. And here we are six months later. And look, I, I think none of us have any regrets. We're all so happy on your end, I'm sure, and on our end that we launched this. But I'd love to hear how things are going, why you guys decided to launch it, and uh, what you're most looking forward to. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, interesting times, it's fair to say. I mean, I think we've got interesting to hear from your side, I suppose, because uh, Quite often we find in the UK, obviously very much linked economies, that what happens on your side of the pond, we can't often see a few months later coming onto our side. And um, yeah, we've seen that all of this year. And you hit the nail on the head. My background is, um, and my partners, there's four of us, we were all at the large traditional property advisory firm. So JLL and Colliers International. And you know, so between us all, we had quite a lot of big corporate experience. And I think I don't know if it came over to the States, but uh, certainly in the UK, because of COVID, quite a lot of people just started to think about what do they personally want to get out of their careers and their lives. And it was called the Great Resignation. So there's quite a lot of people just sat down and what do I want to do? And I've always wanted to do our, our own kind of investment advisory real estate brokerage firm. It's I've been going just over 20 years, so my partner's a bit longer. And I started in a smaller practice of about 80 people which was bought out by Jones Lang in 2008. And um, I thought, yeah, like I said, we just always felt for us, it was quite an exciting thing to do. And yeah, good comparisons with yourselves. And we found that the beginning of the year was so exciting. COVID had actually been, despite the devastation it caused across the world on a personal and financial level, certain parts of the property industry had been really strong. And what we had operated in was very strong. So quite a lot of aspects, certainly of the property market we work in, were coming up quite, yeah, well, this, this is a good time to get going. And you might, we don't regret it, but wow, the change in the last four months, you couldn't have predicted that in any market. <laughs> Especially. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And look, I've always kind of been of the uh, opinion that when the market is in flux, like it is right now, that's where some of the biggest opportunities are, both yeah. for our clients and for us as business owners, as new up and coming brokers firms. So, you know, along those lines, I, I'm curious, like, what is the value add that Fond Real Estate provides to the client? What is the difference you think that separates you and your partners from the traditional brokerage firm? Because, hey, guess what? We all came from the big traditional. Yeah, we did. Field, we did. Right? Yeah. And, and I think we'd both agree with Tom that um, 
there's a place for the big firm. They've got huge resources and research houses and all that element, which certain clients need. And I'm not questioning that in any sense of that. There's a place for it. But we just found in the, we work in a relatively small part of the of the market. You know, I think you call it triple net or out of town retail as well. And it's quite a small number of operators on the client side who operate in that sphere. So we have quite a lot of direct contact at a personal level with these clients. And we felt for us, what makes Font and what we wanted to do, we passionately believe that myself as a partner, I always want to be leading those negotiations, those conversations. I want to be at the coalface. I think your value is being at the coalface so you can truly advise and undoubtedly you know, the large firms can provide this to agree. But I just think that slightly personal touch, one-on-one smaller practice is for us and for the clients that we specifically work with, I think just better married, basically. But yeah, like I said, I'm not going to criticise the large firms, but for us as our individuals and the evolution of what we are trying to do as a business, we just thought this was a better platform to do that. How about yourself? Well, no, I would would agree with everything. I think what's exciting about, being in a firm that you could, you know, call a startup is first of all, we're as experienced as anybody else at the big firm. So if we go to the table to win the business, we've also got 15, 20 years of experience. So that part, I don't think gives the big firm advantage. And you're right, they do have some resources. But what I think is an advantage of a boutique firm that has qualified, experienced individuals that also has resources is we're able to go outside of the box. The traditional firms kind of have their structure. This is how we do it. You may have some great ideas and it doesn't, not necessarily that they're going to discount it, but there's a process by which that has to be vetted out and then implemented because you're talking a thousand agents or multiple countries. When you have something more boutique, it may be the same idea, And it may be a great idea, but the ability to implement it and then maybe not firm wide, but on a case by case basis, I think allows us to be a little bit more agile than -hmm. maybe some of our competition. And I I think that part is really exciting. We also don't have any, well, look, it's not to say we don't have any bad habits, but at the new company, we don't have any bad (laughs) habits, right? So, you know, we're not married to some situation per se that kind of handcuffs us from change, from evolution, right? And I think that's a very exciting thing about being a new firm and a launch in a startup. I'd agree with that. The, the other thing I've learned is in your smaller niche owned business environment, you're completely empowered to put your hands up sometimes and say, thank you, Mr. And Mrs. Client for thinking yeah. of me this, but that's not my expertise. But where I am exceptionally good and market leading is this particular area. And there's no pressure to feel like I must find a X, Y, or Z to deal with that for you. It's focusing on what you're very good at to give the client the best service. And that's in this platform is the best to do that. Well, and that's why we launched this firm to focus specifically on corporate real estate and sale leaseback, which which we're going to jump into. I want to get more about, learn more <laughs> about your experience and on the out-of-town, I think, retail or the <laughs> out-of-town product that you guys work on. And I know there's a big aspect of the grocery store, the food service uh, industry in your specific focus. I don't know if that's ap- as applicable to your partners, but I I'd love to hear a little bit more about your specialization. And then I think from there, we can kind of segue into the, some of the sale leasebacks because we are seeing some of the grocers try to execute some sale leasebacks out in Europe. I know Kroger, yeah. for example, did it out here recently with one of their yeah. subsidiaries. So I'd love to kind of dig into your background and then we'll we'll shift from there. Yeah, well, um, so my, my background is so just over 20 years. I started in, in leasing agencies on, as you call, shopping mouths 
for acting for landlords, letting up that space. And that kind of evolved on through various channels uh, into this kind of advisory role that we have now, which is a, quite a strong specialism. You're right in that grocery space, but in addition to what we call out-of-town retail. Now, what I mean in the UK, out-of-town retail, that would be, you know, you get in your car, you drive to the town or city periphery, and there'll be a big box of five or six retailers in, in huge five to 50,000 square foot properties. Those are the two parts we do. The grocery, the supermarket aspect is often, even though it's pretty much its own sector in its own right, it's often uh, dragged in to that kind of outer town retail aspect too, because again, it's just big boxes with surface car parts. So that would be like in the US, an example of you go out of the big city, you get out of LA and there's a big Walmart super center with a bunch of pads surrounding yes. it, the the In-N-Out Burger, the McDonald's, whatever it may be. That's kind of the, the UK equivalent. It's just called the out-of-town retail. Correct. That is out-of-town retail, big box retail. And it can be anything from a single solus retail property, mm-hmm. the biggest being a supermarket, just down to multi-multi-let, 30, 40 units, huge mega parks, which are big regional draws for the uh, you know the particular area of the UK. You have to remember also um, within the UK, land is a lot more scarce uh, than in the States. So our, even though traditionally, you, say, you just drive to the fringes of your town and, and that's where all your big grocery stores are. Quite a few are actually quite close to the town centre as well. But it's a big box. We call it out-of-town retail or grocery. Quite straightforward. From the grocery perspective, though, mm-hmm. with me, as a firm, we cover those two aspects. For okay. me in the UK, I'm one of the few supermarket specialists, grocery specialists. I do cover both areas, but I would spend 70% of my time on that grocery aspect. I suppose I earned my stripes for well, about 10 to 15 years ago mm-hmm. when one of our major uh, grocery retailers, Sainsbury's, I was a consultant. I was actually seconded into their business for about eight years. And part of that, that consultancy instruction that we had was to do, say, leasebacks for them. So we've got quite a, an ingrained knowledge of a combination of both my investment background of knowing what a, an investor is looking for, overlaid against what the operational requirements are for that retailer. And that was quite a successful project. That batch of leasebacks, which concluded about six years ago, raised about £1.3 billion for Sainsbury's at that that point in time. Um, Really taking advantage back then of the huge annuity requirement for those leasebacks, which were fundamentally underpinned by strong real estate and and a strong credit in the form of the tenant who was given the lease back out. Very good. So that's, I got to imagine that's a lot of fun and very like satisfying because you find the operator, in this case, it's the grocery store operator. They've got multiple sites. I would assume some that they own and operate out of, some that they lease. You're able to consistently look through their portfolio and maybe an annual basis, strategize with them on key sites, uh, maybe ones that are underperforming, ones where their tenants, maybe helping them renegotiate leases when that's possible, maybe ones that they own where it's a good performer saying, hey, let's free up some capital. Let's execute a sale lease back. And then any ones that they own and operate out of that are underperforming and you're just selling those and they're, and they're exiting out of that market. There's so many facets to that, which I'm sure are very rewarding for you and, and enjoyable and probably building great relationships along the way. Yeah, no, it was, it was good fun. I mean, we had in the UK, I mean, there's 
traditionally four large supermarket operators in Tesco, Sainsbury's, Morrison's and Asda, Asda formerly owned by Walmart. And back then they were known as the big four because they had circa 75, 80% of the market. You know, bring the clock forward now, they have lost market share to the likes of Lidl and Audi. But back then there was this huge, what we called space race in the UK. They're all building bigger and bigger out of town retail supermarkets. They're going up everywhere. So it was quite an exciting time because they were building these stores. They were cutting off the dead wood of the stores that weren't so good. They were raising capital from leasebacks. It was a a pretty exciting time. I mean, it it ground to a halt in 2013-14, but but we are starting to see some good signs in the last couple of years. The market has evolved. It's changed, but it's certainly um, quite still an exciting market to get involved with. Yeah, something that I don't track, but I've been reading a little bit of, you know, I don't track personally, which I'm sure you're watching in some respects, it's what's going on over here in the States is the Kroger-Albertsons mm-hmm. merger that's going on. And it'll be interesting to see how that changes the kind of grocery store industry over in the U.S. As I think my understanding is they're looking to team up to compete against the likes of the Walmarts of the world. Yes. And so it's just going to be interesting to see, you know, they say a lease back going to become part of that. What are they going to close down? I'm sure in many markets there, you know, they've got two that are very close to each other. So that consolidation in some respects will yeah. be probably something interesting to watch. And I'm sure for you, some things that you'll be able to apply over to the UK uh, once they get that in process. So yeah. let's go specifically to kind of the grocery store mm. industry and what's going on there. And then maybe we can apply that to, you know, bigger economic issues affecting all businesses in the UK. And then from there, I'm going to go, hey, how does the sale lease back solve this problem? So let's <laughs> let's talk about it, right? I mean, then, then it's perfect. Then we've kind of tied a bow around it and, and, yeah, and yeah, we're good. Yeah, yeah, why not? So what are the headwinds facing your clientele right now in the grocery store industry? And then how does that maybe apply to some of the other business types? Yeah, well, the headwinds for the actual grocery operators, you know, the four I mentioned, the others, I mean, it's a global thing. There is a cost of living crisis at the moment, you know, where effectively you know in, in in my opinion you know we're in recession in the uk already um we saw the writing on the wall early summer so june july things were in the investment market slowing off quickly the signs were there so that was obviously getting heightened cost of living is high uh we're, we're entering winter in the uk so a lot of people are nervous on you know gas prices oil prices we have to heat our homes so that is the major major headwind at the moment our inflation is running you know in double digit levels grocery inflation is up at you know 14 15% so despite wow. some of the retailers are seeing some sales growth you've always got to overlay that against the fact that they've got very high inflation so the biggest issue for them is they're fighting for market share with a consumer who is unfortunately extremely price conscious at the moment they are spending less they are either buying cheaper brands or they're changing grocery store they're prepared to visit for a cheaper one just to save a few pounds and pennies. So the actual operators themselves, they're fighting that on the one part, yet their costs are going up. Financial markets aren't helping them. It's very expensive to borrow money at the moment. So they're trying to effectively pass on as much savings as they can to their customers to maintain them. But, you know, it's, it's aggressive. The other part to add is overlaid with that, as I said earlier, we've had these, these kind of four major players in the UK market. The last decade, we've seen some phenomenal work by the likes of Lidl and Aldi to enter the market to grow their stores 
really high, really focused on a, quite a low margin business, but, you know, rack it and stack it, you know, make it cheap and they will come and they do it exceptionally well. And there's no, no question of that. So we no longer have four operators controlling 80% of the market. There's effectively seven, eight, nine of them all in the market now. So that consumer pound, which is very much under pressure, is getting spread amongst a lot of operators at the moment. So how do the grocery guys battle? They've got to keep the prices cheap. So it's hard. Yeah. It's hard for them. How do they expand right now? Do they expand or do they do they maintain status quo? I mean, and this is applicable to any business, right? Like, yeah. you know, I'll be interested to see what on your side what happened in uh, two thousand and eight because, fortunately, we've both been around long enough now to be yeah. <laughs> been through a couple of the cycles. But I observed in 0809 when we had a recession then that it was what we call you know the discounters, the cheaper food retailers or retail operators that really went on an aggressive expansion because they realised from what I've just talked about you know those that the consumer is price conscious, but for the retailers themselves, they found they could actually get their hands on some property, which they just couldn't have afforded a few years ago because developer or landlord expectations on rents they were going to achieve were lowered. So quite often in a recession, or certainly the last one, it's tough for the, for the grocers, but they fare a lot better than other retailers. I mean, ultimately, well, f- food is a non-discretionary item. Yeah, you have yeah. to eat. Yeah. So they, they can actually have a okay-ish recession. So are there back to your question? Expansion, yes, we are going to see expansion, certainly from Little and Audi. We also have the likes of Home Bargains and B&M in the UK. So we will see more of their stores opening. And that, I think they will take advantage of opportunities that wouldn't have been presented 12 months ago. Yeah, so Goldman Sachs had an article. I sent it to you. I was preparing for our podcast article or a little post, maybe it was a month ago, saying in the UK, they thought values were going to drop about 15 to 20% yeah. by 2024. So going to your point, grocers want to expand. And, and I think you're right. That's one of the industries that can probably afford to be more aggressive than some of the other retailers right now, where spending is discretionary. Values are down 15 or 20%. I think there is a good possibility that a percentage of the grocers expand, they pick up cheaper properties, they redevelop it. The challenge though, that they're all gonna have, once again, across industries, is obtaining debt right now is difficult. So they wanna do this, they wanna expand. They're either paying an arm and a leg for the interest or now they're coming in all cash and there's some limitations there. So you know, how do interest rates going up kind of impact the ability of, these grocers and retailers in general, and any of our clientele in general, yeah. to expand and to grow. I mean, again, as I said at the beginning, you know, our, our economies track each other. Well, I'll track yours, should I say. But um, yeah, look, our interest rates are higher, aren't they? By both sides of the pond. The roll-on effect is borrowing costs are higher. I mean, when I'm speaking to clients, whether it be a grocery operator or an investor, often, anyway, I'm not an economist, but the last mm-hmm. 10 years, we've had extremely cheap debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so are we going to return to those levels or certainly not in the short to medium term, I would have thought. I mean, yeah. no one can look any further than that. So the role on impact of these, but they want to expand, you know, the debt, what they do, they go to the debt market, but at the moment, the terms just won't be favorable. And in my experience working with those grocery operators over here, they still own quite a large proportion of their estate freehold, unlike most other retailers, to be clear on that. That's why we talk quite a lot about grocery operators, because most UK retailers have sold their properties off. 
but they will look at their portfolios and if they have lots of different levers they can pull at any point in the financial cycle. So in some points in the cycle, say three, four years ago, it was cheaper to go to debt markets and borrow money or to do some form of securitization or amortizing mm-hmm. the loan or something secured against property. That's what they did. Now those markets have effectively got much more expensive. They're reverting back to the lease back model. The problem we're seeing at the moment is that, Tom, as you exactly as you said, the values are moving out. So what looked like a very attractive sale and lease bag option only four or five months ago, uh, getting a particular yield, well, you're not going to get that yield anymore. So that movement to where pricing is today has been so dramatic, suddenly the questions come up to go, again, balancing lease back against traditional debt or other models. So... I don't know what the answer is, <laughs> but there are yeah, these no, I know. I mean, I look, yeah, I think, I think the, you know, look, you can make an argument. Interest is six, seven, eight percent. I don't know exactly what it is over there. We're probably in the six to sevens right now for commercial properties. So that's limiting the ability to really fully leverage like you were before. And I look, I, and I know firsthand as a, as a guy that owns apartment buildings in Southern California with a bunch of friends and partners, we've seen situations where we buy some buildings that we go in and add value, you know, just like the traditional yeah. investor, you go in and you're pushing up NOI. And we've had some situations this year where we didn't get the NOI where we needed it to be early enough. And so we didn't take advantage of debt at 3% in January. We had to go get debt at 5% in June. Yeah. And that sucked a lot of our proceeds, right? And so now instead of having money in our pocket, we're maybe coming out of pocket just to pay down some of the bridge loans that we got just to keep the property. So then that has a trickle effect of less money in my pocket to go expand my business of buying yeah. more apartment buildings, right? Yeah. And so it has this trickle down effect. But I mean, you kind of hinted at a sale leaseback, which is really the solution, not for everybody, but for some, because with traditional financing, you're limited to 65, 70% loan to value, whatever it may be. You now have got seven, eight, 9% interest or whatever that may be. And with the sale leaseback, you're still able to get all your equity out. So you can yeah. fuel growth, you can fuel expansion, you can balance your, your balance sheet or, or, you know, have optimal balance sheet. But, you know, now when you turn to do the sale leaseback and sell it, you're not selling a five or six cap, you're selling yeah. a six or a seven or eight cap. So yeah. Either way, you're not getting as much equity out as before. But if things continue to get worse on the financial market, it may just frankly be the easiest way for these grocers, these retailers to expand. Yeah. There may there may just frankly not be many other options, right? Yeah, I think you nail on the head. It's when they compare all the different financial options, regardless of the cost of whichever capital route you're going to go down, I suspect you've got the most options on leaseback at the moment as opposed to other markets. And that's why we are seeing, certainly at the moment, the likes of Sainsbury's and Morrison's in the UK in the middle of same leaseback programs again. But the the yields, the cap rates, which are being discussed are 200 bits cheaper than only a year ago. So it it is an unbelievable change in uh, pricing expectations at the moment. But as we've said, it's, in line with everything else in the market. I mean, to be clear, this isn't a grocery or retail specific pricing movement. We're seeing a cross sector. And that goes back to the earlier point. Debt is no longer going to be cheap. Everything has to be rebased. So I, I know, um, you know, our founder, Chelsea Mandel, she was out at a private equity forum or spoke on a private equity sale leaseback panel a couple of weeks ago out in London. 
She then followed up with an article that we posted on our website about she saw a growth on sale leaseback opportunities over in Europe. And a big portion of the article talked about how traditionally sale leasebacks have not been kind of the favored option for many business owners compared to what you see going on in the U.S. And I don't know if you knew that there is a pretty big disparity between how many businesses do sale leaseback over on this side versus over in Europe. You know, based on your knowledge, do you know why there's been that difference? Why hasn't Europe bought into this as much as, say, the U.S.? Numerous reasons, really. I mean, I can't really come on Europe, but on the UK, well, we are part of Europe, but on the UK specifically. Yeah, no, no, fair enough. I mean, I'm not an accountant, but the rules were changed a few years ago that effectively any leaseback, um, that lease liability has to go on balance sheet now for the operator. So that will sit there as a liability, whereas previously it wouldn't have done. So more recently, that is one of the core reasons why We've not seen it. Now, I'm not an accountant, as I said. I'm sure there's other pros and cons they can think of why it could be bad or not to go on balance sheet. The other side is, it's pure sentiment. So Morrison's, even though privately owned now, and Lidl and Audi are privately owned, the the original founding family of Morrison's, surprisingly called Morrison's, they believe that you should own your property. It's as simple as that. It was just a pure mental state that that is their belief. And they just wouldn't sell anything. Now, they only did their first sane leasebacks about seven years ago, and they did just five stores. They dipped their toe in and then retracted. And they probably raised 150, 200 million pounds then, five stores. That's all they did. So now, with new ownership, I think the doors are open. The Morrison's family no longer got a stake in the business. And that has been considered again. So that, that's the other factor. And then with Lidl and Audi, again, they're privately owned by families and the, the mentality of those ownerships, they will agree leases, development leases. So where we're trying to put them onto what those retail parks I mentioned at the beginning, yes, they will take leases if they cannot buy the land, but their preference is still buy the asset where possible. I mean, it's opening up more now. I always question that if you've got an estate worth eight billion pounds, do you need to own it all? I'm not questioning you should own some. And maybe that's where we're going to. I mean, Tesco did a very aggressive program of leasebacks, and they've actually been buying in a lot of their property over the last three or four years. But they're still going to have a 50 to 60% freehold ownership. Same as aren't dissimilar. As there are Morrisons, despite them selling off some of their stores on leaseback, they're still at the 80% ownership. So, yeah, and I think it's like some of it is just the sentiment of, there's that security probably in owning the property. And that just maybe goes back to more traditional conservative thinking is, well, even if the business doesn't work out, I still own the property and that's worth something, right? Exactly. And the two takeovers of Asda and Morrison's we've seen in the last couple of years, by you know, take them private, lots of the financial commentary was always about, yes, they're taking on significant debt to fund these deals, but you've got a property estate you own. So if you have to, you could release some of this to the market. And we saw it with Asda. They did their distribution portfolio. Credit to Asda. They caught the market at the absolute peak, you know, 1.7 billion to um to Blackstone. They know what they're doing. But to suddenly generate close to 2 billion to pay off some of that debt, very good move. Morrison's on a similar process. They've been looking at a same leaseback portfolio of their distribution network and their stores. They are behind in terms of the journey of Asda because it was bought out after Asda. The market has moved on, but 
regardless, they are still very active in that area now to release capital from their So is, is some of that just like an education type thing? You've got these original family founder-owned companies, family founder-owned traditional grocery stores that were owned by a private family. And as they grow, they either go public or they bring on the private equity partners, the financial wizards, and then they go, hey, we're doing really well here, but let's just look at the numbers. And hey, if we're really trying to ratchet up the returns here, it doesn't make sense to own the real estate on the entire portfolio. Let's start chasing bigger returns because we owe it to our investors. We owe it to the market, whatever it may be. Is that a piece of it? It's just this education process through the traditional pa owners? Pa partly, but when either you know, the founding family had significant shareholdings or, or being private, then that was more mindset. But mm -hmm. the returns up until recently, just in the conventional doing what they should do well, grocery, were pretty good. The divvy on the shares was... Yeah. was pretty strong obviously as they were private owned by walmart when I mean, you tell me what's walmart strategy for ownership but they they never yeah. wanted to go down a lease back strategy they just yeah think yeah. in their dna it's best to own some of it and i think yeah. it also goes back there for quite often when people write up about the grocery stores everything they own 50 60 70 80 percent of their estate i'm quite thinking yeah they might do but what is the unencumbered estate freehold estate so I can guarantee you that if you've got an 80% freehold ownership, there'll be some form of securitization or debt or something on an element. Yes, it will mature and it will go away, but it won't be unencumbered. There will be, you can just get your hands on a till straight away. So I just think if some CFO just liked the idea of, okay, we could lease back a bit or we could securitize a bit. And we like, so there, you just have to adjust to the market at that point in time. And at the moment, the lease back option seems to be the, the better route to go down for them. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are you and your partners most excited about through the end of the year and, you know, heading into 2023, both as it relates to your firm and your company, but just the market overall? Yeah, I think it's the opportunity at the moment. I know you said it earlier, Tom, that we might be in a, a bit of a sticky place. The market is trying to reassess where it should be and find its space, but it does present opportunity. And certainly when we had our temporary prime minister for about four weeks and they managed to almost crash our economy into the wall, things were really in free fall at that point. We just mm -hmm. like, where is the bottom? When is this going to stop? But in the last few weeks, it's calmed down. Um, we see in suddenly investor uptick come up and it feels not in a good place, but effectively the free fall has stopped. So that's great. That's giving investors confidence again now to say, look, now we can actually do something. We know where, where Gilts and Swaps and Sonya are going to be settling. So we're now seeing that the values have come out. It's opened up opportunity and that lots of investors who own this product historically said, we are not going to sell at all. Why would we? The financial shock of the last few months has just made a few of them start to think, I might want to get some capital back for my holdings. Let's see if we can put that into the market. Now, there has to be an acceptance of the pricing readjustment. But for us, there's different buyers always at different levels. And it's just knowing where the market is. So it's tough. It's tougher than it's ever been. And we're like you. We're new. You know, we're scrabbling for every fee. Cash flow is always of a concern. But there's opportunity. There's vendors and purchasers out there. But that's all you need for a market. When you guys had this financial scare, and I look worried, I guess there's still a financial scare. But when... The chaos was ensuing in the UK about a month ago. Were more of your clients answering the phone and, and or calling you guys than maybe they were six months ago when everything was good and they could just go, hey, don't worry about it. Prices are going up. I can go get my cheap debt. 
Yeah, no, actually, it went the opposite way. It went quiet, deadly quiet. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. How about when COVID first hit? I, I remember that's when I was still doing brokerage day to day. It was so easy to get people on the phone when COVID first hit because everybody wanted to talk saying, what's going on? What am I going to do? Ah, right, yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? For, for a chat about the market, oh, what's going to happen? Oh, yeah, you had, you had those conversations where you're blue in the face. Yeah. Obviously, nobody yeah. knew anything that was going to happen. <laughs> so you're just comparing bad stories and opinions on what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So I think after a couple of weeks, everyone got a bit depressed on that. So um, it just went quiet. But we also found like our, our clients buying and selling, the ones who wanted to sell said, put everything on hold because we're not sure where pricing is going to get yeah. to. And those who wanted to deploy capital said, we've still got the money, but we're not in a rush to spend it until this malaise has, has calmed down. And you're yeah. right, with COVID at the beginning, it was very similar. It was, um, yeah. you could get hold of everybody. I mean, everyone was at home for a start. There's loads of time. <laughs> yeah, well, that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah for was, sure. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite something. But we found... Quickly, COVID over here, once everyone got into the routine, there were particular areas which did benefit from this from a real estate perspective. And it was the areas that we work in. Because you work in those big boxes that you drive to, it was it relatively safe and secure. You, yeah, when shops yeah. started to open, you could socially distance. There was no getting on public transport. So they it, benefit, it was one of the areas to bounce back quite quickly on sales. And yeah. grocery ultimately did very well because everyone was bored and just wanted to buy a nice meal and a bottle of wine. That's what it. else have you got to do? <laughs> yeah, that sounds like my life still. I'm bored and like nice meal and a bottle of wine. Nice meal and a bottle of wine, yeah. Yeah, just <laughs> for, well, don't even know where you have to do a home education or not because that was also quite an enjoyable one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very good. Well, I think we're just about wrapped up, Tom. Let me ask you one final question. Yeah. Who in the world of corporate real estate would you like to take the lunch? Oh, that's a, that's a very corporate one. Right. Oh, or, corporate or, 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 you know, real estate in the UK. Who would be the <laughs> one guy or, or lady that you say, hey, I'd love to yeah. go you know, bend this person's ear? I'd say with, with um issue with real estate, as much as I love working in it, it's just big, boring boxes at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so I like architecture. So it's a bit cliche. Oh, that's but, cool. Yeah. So it's all like Lord Foster from a real estate perspective, you know, the architect. Someone like that, I think, would be quite inspiring. His ability to kind of combine modern with old and be quite brutal. You know, whether it be the Girk in London or Apple campuses, one of his. And we've got the Museum of Britain in London. It's mm -hmm. a beautiful 200-year-old building. He put this beautiful roof over the top of it, making atrium. It's stunning. And I just think that ability to cross old and new is quite a skill that very few have. So, uh, yeah, I'd have a beer with him and see what he thinks. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's, I, I get excited about that stuff too. Very cool. Well, thanks again, Tom. I appreciate your time. I enjoyed right. the conversation and uh, look forward to meeting you personally when I get over to London. Well, great. Thank you for your time, Tom. All right. Good. Thanks again. Appreciate Cheers. it. Mission Critical, a sale leaseback podcast by Ascension. To find out more about Ascension and how we can help you achieve a higher standard of real estate advisory, visit www.higherascension.com. And then make sure to search for Mission Critical in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. We talk to Sally Spy. Yeah.